everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here on a long distance call, 18 hour difference with pastry chef, Will Goldfarb. Um, it's really funny because I remember the first time I met Will in person was at Star Chefs, the first ever Star Chefs in New York. And we were with, God, I can't, I, I'm really bad on the names. Was it um, Michele Scarp? Boney from um, Combalzera. Oh, uh, David Escabib. Ah, yes, it was. That's who. I, that's the first time I ever met you. Um, man, that was years ago, like eons. I like, I'm a little terrified. I mean, that might have been 2005 at best. I mean, at best 2005. It could have been earlier. But so, it's, uh, yeah, we're dinosaurs, man. It's it's it's, it's, it's the Sopranos, baby. It's time to get a new show. <laughs> That it's, is uh, definitely, it's funny because I keep talking to folks and and everybody's like, man, we're the old guard. We're the old crew. And I'm like, yeah, yes and no. There's older. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, I mean, we haven't, that's the problem, right? We're stuck in the middle. We haven't gotten yet to be the old guard yet. It's like, we're just, we're somewhere in limbo. It's never, never land. So I, I managed to dodge all that by moving to somewhere that's impossible to find. So I'm like, yeah, I'm by definition off the radar. So, well, you, you've written an incredible book. You have a restaurant in Bali, which is a very a pastry restaurant, very unique restaurant in Bali. And I think there's a story to how you got there. And I think it's really important that people understand how you got to where you are, because you have a, an ability and, and just this craftsmanship that has always been above and beyond. You've always really, I mean, that demonstration that you did at Starships, I still remember. And I think it'd be really great for people to understand, like, how did this start for you? Like, where was that? What was that first moment you were like, hey, you know, I think I think I really want to really focus on pastry specific. Well, that's easy, but I will just slip in one uh, plug because that presentation we've had the chef's garden gave us 111 red plants, everything red they grew on the farm and built us like a red plant holder. So it was like one of the more ridiculous things that we've ever done, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and it's great to, no, I mean, I've been a big fan of yours for decades and it's been, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm big on like history and people in the industry and, and, and punching the clock. Uh, so I have a lot of love and a, and a lot of time basically for everyone who's been slugging it out for years um, because it's, I mean, it's a great industry, uh, as you know, and it's also like it's a it's a all in all the time, basically. So you, you know, you either like we we have that conversation with people all the time. We're here self self funded in the middle of nowhere, and it's like you wake up every day, flip a coin, open or closed, uh, which is basically what we were doing in New York, and probably the. I think it took about 10 years to get to that point in New York in, in kitchens, but before that, I'd been working in restaurants for almost another 10 years. I think I've been working in restaurants for 35 years, uh, which is dating myself a little bit, but 
I mean, I started parking cars at a country club 15 minutes from my house, like valeting, uh, caddying, um, and sort of busboy was a big step up for me in high school. Uh, food runner was like the big glamour jobs on Long Island with like all the big chefs like Tom Shodell on Long Island, Montauk, and at Locust Valley. Like, and I went to school in Durham, North Carolina. I was still working front of house for four years, actually. I was a host, bartender at a steakhouse. I drove the limo, uh, like I drove the drunk people home from the bar. I had a green vest, it was terrifying, it was, it was awful. I drove a green, a vintage green Cadillac limo. Uh, with green That's and amazing. Gold. Yeah, all, all green, all green and gold, all green, terrifying. On uh, 15501 in North Carolina, Venice. Wow. Uh, and that's where I learned, I mean, I'd learned to bartend at another country club. Like I upgraded from the country club that I valet parked at. And then I, uh, and then I learned to bartend at another country club. And I think by the end of, by the end of school, which is what, 97. So 25 years ago, uh, I was still in front of house, uh, but I would jump in between shifts in the kitchen, just like, you know, hauling strawberries or like just whatever stupid job nobody wanted to do. Uh, at a place called Nana's in Durham, which Scott Howell, I don't know if you know Scott, but he's a great chef. He, he was an old boule guy from the like Eric Repair, Dan, you know, Dan Barber on the stewarding station boule days. Um, and, and he had, he, you know, he had like great handmade pasta and like, you know, butternut squash risotto and great local products. And he had solid wines. And it was like a, it was a, it was a good restaurant, really good restaurant. Uh, and so I started learning more about wines and, you know, like as you work, you're, if you want to make money in a restaurant, you know, in college, like you need to work in a better, like you need to sell more stuff, whether it's drinks or wine or food. So I started to like go to the wine shops in Durham, you know, like between classes, I mean, we were drinking amazing stuff like 89 Vigal, like just stuff that was new release back then. But so it was pretty exciting. Uh, and I, and I was supposed to go to law school but I was just so sick of being in school. I mean, by the time I graduated college, I was doing like one day a week of class and working three jobs. So I worked in three different restaurants uh, a day. <laughs> like I did, I was, um, and I would come home on Sunday night and do like an overnight, uh, all the papers I needed to write for Monday, I would do on Sunday night and then I would do it again, basically for, for the whole year. So, and I, I went to Paris, like as a decoy for pastry school, uh, for, 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 I went, I signed up to the Cordon Bleu, like the super express, like, uh, I think I did basic pastry in three weeks or something like 18 days. Uh, but before that was just my excuse to not go to law school. I was supposed to go to USC to do uh, IP law. That was, a that was always my dream was to, was to like be an attorney and then make money and then open restaurants like around 35 or 40. So I got like the, the second part, more or less right, just not the first part. I didn't ever get the money. I never got the money part of it. I just got the, the restaurant part. But, but uh, so I went to Paris, but actually before I started working in, before I started doing class, I went, my dad came over, you know, he met some friends of his from literally the sixties when he was in Paris. And we went out to like their neighborhood bistro in Paris, which was a place off the Champs-Elysees. They had this great French pastry chef. I mean, that, I mean, he's still around, Henri Baudet. I found him on Facebook. He's got a shop in his hometown. Uh, but he, uh, he wanted to go on vacation. 
and they didn't have anyone to cover the station. It was like a four person team, you know, like hot, cold, I think that was it, hot, cold, a pastry and a chef's cuisine. And it was like a pretty pumping, uh, like a like a casual set menu, bistro, brasserie off the Champs-Elysees, late night place, big party place. Um, and he was like so desperate to, to get time off that he was like, sure, I'll train this kid to do pastry, you know, so I can have a holiday. So like, I knew if I got in for like a week that that would pretty much, I would be okay. So I would go in and work and have this guy basically tell me how, I mean, everything was, I mean, it was terrible. I didn't speak a word of French. I'd never worked in a kitchen. I'd never done pastry. And I had like a whole menu to prepare from scratch every day. Um, which was, I mean, and the minute he came back, he was like, get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> go, go work with the animals on the hotline. Is like, stop, you know, stop helping. Uh, so like, but I learned so much in that job, like just to set up a station, like, I don't know, I think sometimes people forget just how important, like that's the first job is like, just set up a station, like just have containers of shit ready, you know, like be able to put food on the plate, and that's actually always, I was at much more comfortable savory cooking than pastry. Uh, it felt much more like a sport and much more like intuitive. I mean, I, I think part of that was because I didn't know anything about it. Like I never really learned how to butcher or, you know, like old school sauce making, but like putting food on the plate and like doing the sort of athletic part and getting set up and doing the service. Like I really enjoyed that. And, and I did a lot of that there for a few months. And like I got a sal, I went from being basically like a like a not even a stage, like a helper, you know, to a stage to like a wage, and then and then I realized like that I need. I mean, I, at that point I had I was in school. I think I had French class in the morning and then pastry class in the afternoon, and then I worked all night till two to three or four in the morning. Um, and then I was like, shit, I need you know I need more money. Like I need to, and I also need to work in a. Like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna stay in restaurants, I might need to crank up the quality of restaurant that I'm working in. So, and it was also it was just getting like I mean the nights were crazy. We were doing like dessert tasting boards at like three a.m. You know people were coming from the nightclubs on the Champs Elysees for like full dinners at two in the morning. I mean it was just it was crazy. Like uh, people dancing on tables. It was like a proper joint. Like even our staff would be like out dancing and come back. You know, it was just a, it was just a proper like pirate shit. What a uh, way though, like what a way to get indoctrinated into like cooking in France, right? Like you hear yeah. those stories and people are like, no, it's not real. I'm like, yeah, it is really real. Like it's real. a lot I mean, of it, it there. It's still there. I mean, the guy that ran the cold station, he was like a hairstylist for Givenchy shows during the day and then he would come and run the line at night. And, like the chef was really, I mean, it was a solid, like it was a very respectable place. There was a few, you know, ropey things there, like every restaurant, but I mean, and it was like, you know, the center of one of those old ass buildings, no fan, all good. Like it's like the normal, you know, like, I mean, the, those stories have become very famous over the past two decades, you know, by, by virtue of, you know, some, someone in particular, but like, they're also true. I mean, that's like, you know, we, we try not to lose that side of it. I know there's a lot, uh, about the, let's say the old ways, which are like, I think we can all agree that like being respectful of people and their lives and where they come from are good things. And those are positive changes in the industry. For sure. Uh, like there's no, there's no like longing for me for like the good old days of, uh, 
good old days of bullying or harassment. Uh, but luckily for me, like that wasn't really a part of any of the kitchens that I worked in. So I never, you know, I mean, people were difficult, but they were difficult about the work. They weren't difficult about where you came from or, you know, it was, it was a pretty motley crew pretty much everywhere, everywhere I worked. Um, and I and think so, that's actually a really good point. You know, it's like at that time, I mean, there was expectations of quality and consistency and and specifications that chef or the sous chef had passed down to you. Those are the only times I ever really got bollocksed, you know, is when I like went off, you know, kilter and didn't follow direction. And and that's when I got it. There was never, you know, I chose to work for long hours. I chose to work for free. No one ever asked me. Um, no, I mean, the, never... yeah, the, best, the best investment I ever made in my career was taking free jobs at better places. I mean, that's like the best two years. I mean, I spent four or five years on the road working other jobs to pay for my apprenticeships. You know, like... Yeah, but that was never something that was forced upon me. Those were those were choices that I made. Like, you know, right. I would go on vacation with my wife and go stage in a restaurant, which was not really fair to her. But like that was a choice. You know, it's like, we're going to Paris. I'm going to go stage at Paul Bocuse. They didn't let me in, but I stood outside with my knife kit looking like a ding dong. You know, it's like you make those choices. And I think the time has changed. I do think it's a lot better. And I think people are treating people with respect. It's it, please and thank you goes a really long way. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I have the same. I mean, I, I did that at Mark Bayrata, asked him for a job, but he told me he didn't want to pay my insurance bill. <laughs> Um, but I, but I, uh, I mean, no, no one ever, I, again, I think both of us, I, well, I'll speak for myself. I've had a lot of opportunities and a lot of access for a variety of reasons that aren't necessarily available to everybody else. And frankly, that's kind of behind like everything that we do here is making sure that people have access. You know, we always say like talent is equally distributed, but access is not. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big thing for us. And I think that I had a lot of luck to get you know, I worked hard to be lucky, but I had a lot of good stuff set up that made it easier for me to go through. But yeah, I never, the kitchens that I was in, either by choice, by coincidence or not, were, were really, it was, it was all about whether you produce or not. It was, no one cared where you came from. Uh, but again, I, maybe that story is not true for everyone else that was there, you know, so I don't want to speak for other people, but I would say like the people that were giving me a hard time for the first five years of my career and frankly probably even the second five years it was all product it was like this is shit not you're a bad person it was like this is just terrible so like you need to you know you need to make this great or get the, get the fuck out of the way you know like not yeah and I mean, step up or step out usually was what i was told <laughs> i mean and you know like i don't know i was on i was at an event uh, last month with a. Uh, uh magnus from favican doing a presentation and talking about why he closed favican and he was he made a really interesting point which is again not i'd say like let's say rarely uh, mentioned which is like you know it's it is fundamental to want to change the way things are to make them better for everyone and that's true but it's also like it's interesting to pay attention to the parts that are like why they're functional and you can't change the parts you don't like if you don't understand the parts that work. Uh, and I think that's an interesting point uh, in terms of like, uh, it, I think there are benefits to like working hard to get a good result and having like a high standard. I think those are good. I mean, I, I, those values to me are good. 
Um, and if you can do that while treating people like the way they deserve to be treated, I mean, I think that's the, that's the dream, right? That you can that you can do, that you can do both. You can produce, and I think when I've, I mean, to be honest, since I've been in Bali, it, it's always been. I mean, is there another way to do it? Like, can you get the result? Like, can you be nice, <clears throat> invest in people's lives and their families and their community, and then get a result? And I mean, I think we've been lucky here that we have. But I mean, we've we've we have put a lot of hours in. I mean, our staff put in. I mean, when they go abroad to work anywhere, they don't sweat at the hours. It doesn't matter. We've had kids go from stewarding dishwashing here to two Michelin star restaurants in Tokyo. And like, they, there's no, I mean, there, yes, there's a gap in many things between rural Bali and Tokyo, but like our kids are able to jump in anywhere and deliver. I mean, and we're, a, I mean, our crew is all, all local, almost all female and almost all under 30. Um, so it's, it's a, uh, so, so I think, I mean, we try to like do, do it instead of like explain it, you know, as a, but, but I mean, it is important. Those values of access are very important to us. Um, but yeah, along the way, I mean, it's, I do think there's a value in just having to produce and perform like every day. I mean, I, I don't, I do see, and it, this definitely makes me a dinosaur, but I, I do struggle to see how, uh, even something as simple as a shorter work week, I know in theory that there's a there's an argument to be made in terms of productivity, but I guess from my side, I don't see how I would have had the muscle memory to do my job like without having put in X amount of hours. I don't want to glorify it or say there's like some torture chamber that's necessary to become a chef because I don't think that's true. But I know for five years I worked 100 hours a week, and it probably put me on the verge of being crazy, but. It helped me to get the skills that I needed to then get to a point where I could start to do, try to do things the right way. So I'm, I'm always trying to balance that. I think there's definitely a, a very similar connectivity to becoming a chef at a certain level and becoming a doctor. If you really start to think about it, the training, the repetitiveness, the practice, um, the education that consistently is happening, like when people do residencies and so forth, I, I, I attribute them to being the same thing to get to the top and to understand practices. And like the techniques are forever there. They're forever growing and changing and evolving, just like in the medical industry. There's a new technique to save a limb or whatever. And we always have to keep up with a technique, but also be grounded in the traditional basics. Right? Well, it's funny. I always say that it's just like being a doctor, except it's not important. <laughs> like, it's a, no, no one dies. It's like, it's just like being a, like, that's why chefs are always stressed because we treat it like it's like surgery, but it's like supper. You know, yeah. like, I think it goes in one, like, it goes in, you eat it, everybody gets a, you know. Like, but yeah, I think, I mean, I do think that there is a, I mean, I, look, I think that. I think that it is important to remember that our job is like to make stuff, right? So to make stuff, you need to make it like a lot. I mean, that's just, that's not, that's not really like, that's not a new opinion. You know what I mean? You need like mo most of these jobs were apprentice based jobs for, for a thousand, you know, since they became jobs at all. Yep. Uh, I think the, I think the work ethic, I wouldn't say, again, I think the crazy hours, I mean, I'm glad that like the insane hours are a thing of the past, but I'm, I'm not sure that there was a route to get there other than the one that we took. 
Um, and I think that it's, you know, I, I do appreciate like that is kind of the point of progress, right? That you're moving forward and, and making things better. Um, but I'm happy that I went through that route, if that, if that makes sense. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm I, not mean, sure. I wouldn't change any of my choices for the times and hours and things that I've worked. I mean, I think it shaped me to who I am. And I think everybody makes these decisions and it's a choice. But so like from Paris, you're in Paris. What's what next? Like, did you stay? Did you travel through Europe? I mean, you're like, you're living that dream that so many young cooks have wanted. Like I never got to go. Like all I wanted to do is leave culinary school and go straight to Europe. And one, I was too scared. I'll admit it. I was fucking scared shitless. I didn't speak the language. I didn't think I could pull it off. And finally, when I did get to go to Europe, it was many years later, I'd worked in multiple restaurants. So I was a little bit more confident in my abilities, but it was still impossible to get in due to the visas and people didn't want to have Americans in the kitchen when I would show up. I mean, maybe it was just me, but... I don't know. I had a pretty tough go, even in Paris. I went to Pierre Gagnier, they just laughed at me. I had a French dictionary. I went to Beirat, he turned me down. I asked Michel Bra like nine times in writing if I could go. I mean, I, I visited all these places. I could never get in. Um, I got a great apprenticeship at a pastry shop in the sixth called Mulo. And that was like my first like proper job. That was like get in at 4 a.m. and be la the last one there. At, you're there at 4, at 4 a.m like and get the sh and you know just get your ass kicked for yeah the, the rest of the day uh and then i was working for a family as well because i needed money so i worked as a private chef like i would stage from four to four and then go home and then go cook in the evening so that i could pay you know for my stage basically uh and and i worked but this was, it was a great pastry shop it gave me a lot of experience and it made me decide to like continue <clears throat> excuse me, and finished the pastry studies. But so during that time, I kept working for this family because I, I mean, again, I needed money to, to stay in Paris. And, and I, I think I got a, I got a, I, at the spring of 98, I turned that, I called the law school and just said, I've got too much going on. I mean, I was broke in Paris and no job and no money and no prospects. And I was like, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay here in Paris and, and figure it out. And then that week I got invited by the family. They were going to South of France. They were like, we need to cook for the summer. We can give you more money. And at the same time, I visited a friend in Florence and I, I went to Chibreo, which is like still one of my favorite restaurants in the world. Um, and I was like, I just think that's one of the best restaurants it's, that I mean, I, it's still the best tasting food that I've ever had, period, anywhere. It, there's just nothing that. And so I spoke to them and they agreed to let me come in September. So I kind of knew I can go, you know, save money over the summer, work for this family in the Riviera. And then, I mean, again, Europe was cheaper. Like it was still the French franc. It was before the euro. You know, you could have a place in Paris for a few hundred bucks a month. And of course, in the Riviera, I had someone, I mean, I lived in the house. I was just a, like a private chef basically. Um, and then in Chibreo, I mean, I worked for free, but I had an apartment and meals and I worked like, I don't know, a lot of, I mean, we worked, uh, I mean, it's, if you, I'm assuming you've been there multiple times. Yeah, I actually, I just went to Florence this past March, but unfortunately he passed away two days before I got there. And that was one of the places I was so excited to go back to. 
Yeah, and it's just the best. I mean, it's just the, the like, that was just the most intense. And any kitchen even I've ever been in, it's still the only one that was everything fresh every day. I mean, everything. The fridge was emptied every night. There was not a single item, no mayonnaise, no stock. No, not one item was kept in the fridge overnight, except like one case of water. Like the fridge was empty. So every day the back door opened, everything came in. Like, and it was like, all right, go, you know, like you got to get the onion under the broiler so you can make stock. Otherwise you don't have anything. You know, we started the day by doing like 50, you know, 20 to 50 kg of red onion to puree by hand for the sofrito, you know, like for the mirepoix. And uh, I mean, it was like, and you'd have to finish by 9.30 or nobody can cook. And then there's no lunch. And if there's no lunch, then there's no food ready for dinner. You know, it was like half the menu was not ready until dinner, you know, like, so we started like doing pig, you know, you start doing feet in the morning. That's how you make your stock. And then you pick the feet between lunch and dinner. So you have it for like, and everything was like huge batches, like big, big pots and then popped up on the, the little risers. And we had a fine dining restaurant. You know, there's like the fine restaurant then there's a the trotteria then the cafe. And it was like five of us doing all three at the same time. Uh, so it was just like, uh, it was really busy kitchen and we put out so much food and it was just like, so, so fresh, so delicious, like squid ink soup, like all that stuff is still like the best. I mean, you'd emulsify. You're talking the Inzamino. I know exactly the squid Inzamino hands down. Oh. So folks who have no idea what that is, Inzamino is literally squid, squid ink, onions, spinach, absolutely stellar dish. Um, I mean, there's so many, you know, his warm chicken liver Toscana, it just everything that he did there was so soulful. Um, the stuffed yeah. chicken neck, remember the stuffed chicken neck with the yeah, head on every day. Whole stuffed pigeon with mustard, squash soup or squid ink soup. I mean, we, we'd yeah. also find squid ink soup with like 10 liters of olive oil. I mean, it was like making a mayonnaise in the pot. It was just insane. It was, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> But the food was just the, like whole wheels of Parmesan to break down every service, you know, like when olive oil would come in, just filling the racks, racks, of, it was just insane. I mean, it was just, and the market was, it's in the market. So like the guys would just bring over everything. Like it was, and it was like, it, had, it was the best stuff that was available. And it was every day, was, literally there was no, no stock. There weren't even afternoon deliveries. Like there was just, food would just come in the morning and then you'd have to get it ready um, until lunch and lunch was super busy. And then the dinner was like pretty cruisy actually uh, because you didn't have to prep because there's no prep at night because they didn't keep any food overnight. So it was like, so it was just, it was just crazy. But it was a great, uh, I mean, it's, it's, still, it's still like my, my standard for flavor. I mean, there's nothing that you'll ever get that will taste better than that. I just and, yeah. or fresher. I mean, I think there's a lot of restaurants that say they're fresh every day. I mean, you know, we say we're fresh every day, but like no one is like empty fridge every night that I've ever seen and in any country in the world. Like it's just everyone has something like mayonnaise or aioli, you know, like something that you keep overnight stock, you know, like pastry, like even pastry to have nothing overnight for pastry is insane. Like to, <laughs> to have not anything ready. And when you come in in the morning, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, three hours. Yeah. He was an, he was insane in that it had it was his way or the highway, and I loved like you and and for folks who don't, 
he would not serve you coffee with milk after dinner. He would tell you no. Yeah, it's breakfast. That's, that was amazing. I loved that about him. He was just like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> you can have he an espresso pretty- and a grappa if you don't want that. <laughs> He's pretty, uh, I mean, he was, he was, uh, he was, let's say, I mean, as far as pig headed people go, like pretty, pretty, uh, pretty bullish. But I mean, he was like, he was a great guy and super generous. I mean, he took good care of me. And we had a good crew with like a bunch of Japanese stagiaires, which was sort of what we had in Paris as well. And the guy, Giorgio, was there. I went back with my daughter for her birthday, like in 2017 or 2018. So it's like 20 years later. He's still like the chef de cuisine is still picking up all the dishes, same menu, 20 years later. Like I can't even imagine how many tens of thousands of liters of like squidding soup, corn soup, squash soup, you know, cold tripe salad, like steam, we used to do steamed porcini and foil with nipitella. It was like, you know, those are just like the best things I've ever eaten. Sformatos, you know, like, I mean, I can't even, he must have made like a million sformatos in 20 years. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know. And I think he left like right after, he was leaving when I was there. Giorgio, uh, I'm not sure where he is now, but it was like, it was very funny because I went back and I remember him being this like huge guy, like towering over me. And, and, and when I got there, he was like up to my chest. <laughs> Did he have like, the step stool? Did he have the step stool in the kitchen? Like Dario does, you know, like no, Dario, it was was a, there was one step down to the prep. It's a slightly different setup now than it used to be because they have a kind of uh, Asian restaurant, I think where the prep kitchen used to be. They've expanded quite a bit, but. It used to just be the back door between the trotteria and the restaurant was the kitchen, the whole kitchen, all the prep, everything. Uh, and so there was a little step down, but I don't know if it was just me like being small or it's just a perception, but it was just funny to go back and like, and be towering over this guy that I had this image of being like the- You know, but it's also, it could- it, Like it, filling it, the whole frame, you know? It had um, to have been that feeling. You know, so I was there for half a year. And again, after half a year, I mean, I. It's hard because in some ways I've done it the old way, but in some ways, you know, I didn't spend five years. Sorry, just cutting out. No, I got you. Yeah. No, but it's funny because it's like that perception of that person towering over you is also his experience at that point made it feel like he was this big looming figure. He, He was, yet at the same time, he wasn't. You know, it was he might have had a chef hat on. I'm not sure, but he was great. Again, it was a, you know, it was a pirate ship. It was like five. It was a, I was working with a, a young Japanese woman uh, who was an absolute, I mean, she was an absolute beast uh, in the kitchen and a couple of maybe one other Italian guy and a, you know, a dishwasher. I mean, it was just, it was like, it was a war every day. Um, but it was a great, it was a great experience. And I, I, in some ways I feel kind of funny, like, you know, I didn't do like the five year stage somewhere. I would keep moving on. You know, I did six months there and I was, you know, I had a chance to basically, I was ready for, to see more food, you know, like after six, I mean, we did do, it was the same dish twice a day, you know, like you still, you, you still cooked it like in six months, you still cooked it like so, and we cooked so much. Like we, we really did cook a lot of it, but I didn't stay five or 20 years there. I was there, well, maybe more than six months, but 
but I got a chance. I was like, immigration came, and I—I I mean, I've told the story a few times, but it's—I mean, it's also true. But and still, I still think it's kind of funny. But immigration came, and I had to hide in the office because I was like the illegal immigrant. Um, or I think now I call it, we were, we're economic migrants, but we we're uh, I was definitely illegal in the kitchen at that point, uh, and. Uh, the police came, so I was like hiding in the office and I called over to El Bulli because I'd written them three times and they rejected me three times in writing, very politely. And I called uh, from the fax machine in the office. I was like under the desk, like literally on the floor. And, and it was the last day of the year of 98. Uh, and that was the year they got three stars. Like no one had ever heard of them in the States. Uh, I found them by accident in Paris in a bookstore. Uh, looking for Maga Astronomy by Fernand Point, because Fernand's first book was next to, right, because it was next to, the spelling was closest to Fernand. Uh, and so I found the first Mediterranean El Bulli book totally by accident. And I was like, these guys, that's where it's going. Like that's, that, that was in 97. And then I spent the next two years trying to get there. And then at this one immigration raid, they, they were like having a party on the last day of the year before they went home for their families for three months. And they were like, yeah, sure, come next year. You know, do you want to come for a half a year or full year? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to go for the full year. So, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I got my car. I drove to Nice to get it repaired. And I flew home to do parties in New York for two months to make some money. I think at that point, I think I made three grand and that got me through 1998 in Spain. Like that was the, you know, like I, I, and I mean, I worked, that was like a proper job. I mean, we worked a lot. Like that was a, that was like, you were late at 9 a.m. and you were early to get out of there at 2 a.m. And you had five minutes for a coffee on the beach between lunch and dinner. Like we would do lunch petty fours at like seven o'clock. I mean, it was just insane. Uh, it was, it was a busy restaurant and 99 was a big year. It was the first year that kind of like, I, I don't, America discovered uh, El Bulli, like it was a gourmet story. They'd had a Herald Tribune story before that. It was Wall Street Journal. And I met all those people because I was the only person who spoke English. Like none of the guys could speak to the journalists. No one in the restaurant spoke a word of English. <laughs> so it was just a, I mean, I processed the CVs for like Grant and Renee the next year. I mean, it's just like, it's just insanity. Because when I went back to, anyway, it was, it was a pretty brutal year. Uh, pretty brutal year but it, and it didn't start out super well and it didn't continue super well but by the end it was like I kind of settled in uh I worked the oven every day and we just we just had so much work to do like there was just it was just it was a lot of work I mean you could not get your work done it didn't matter like it didn't matter how fast you went what time you got in how well you organized yourself it was just the workload was just very very high um and it was a very particular year and they were so uh, conscious that now like they had a target on their back, like that, you know, if people are saying it's the best in the world, then we need to be like 10 times better than we were last year. Because like now people are coming and they think it's the best in the world. And then, so that was like their attitude the whole year. It was like, well, we really need to be amazing now. Everything before this was like practice. And then we could like that the whole year and then like, you know, Pierre Hermé and Pierre Gagnier came in and they were like, okay, scrap the whole menu. We're making like 60 new dishes just for their table. <laughs> oh my God. So that's, and I think that's really an interesting point. Like you have, you're at El Bui and how many cooks are in the kitchen? 
Uh, back then, not that many. There was like 12 stagiaires that did the full year and like four to five kind of sous chef senior people. It was really only the later years when it ballooned up to like and it 30. Blew up. But 60 yeah. dishes, like 60 dish menu is insane. We, we were doing, we were doing like five desserts, nine petty fours and five snacks on a normal service twice a day. So we had 20 dishes for our station twice a day. Uh, with four of us, we would get the shit kicked out of us absolutely every day. I mean, it was just like, even putting the petty fours on trays was like a huge job. Just, just getting the, there was just nowhere to put it. Uh, like it was, it was, I mean, we doing the garnishes, like we do some garnishes now, like we'll do like one of them for one dish, like 60 to a hundred times a night. And we were doing like 20 garnishes like that 150 times a day. Like, it was just like every whatever you can think of like whatever that was and i mean obviously the savory kitchen had some insane jobs but like i know because we we look at that as like the one glory garnish like we'll do that one thing on one dish so you can see the work and that was literally every dish i mean there was just no there was absolutely no mercy it was a there's a young woman who ran the pastry line. She's got a place in outside Girona now that might have gotten their first star like 20 years later. But we had a really, I mean, it was this, I mean, Ruben Garcia, who's like one of my best friends. He was the guy that, he was running the pastry department at 19. Like that was the guy that- Ruben's the man. <laughs> I mean, that's the guy that kicked my ass every day for, for a year, like every day. Um, yeah, whenever I joke about like someone telling me how terrible I was in the kitchen, it's always Ruben. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he's, he's, he's literally one of my best friends. And I kid you not, he, I was in San Sebastian last year. He drove over from Bilbao where to sleep on my couch. Like, I mean, this is like last year, not 25 years ago. And because he just finished service, learning like how to run an asador in Bilbao, like what the fuck? Like, cause he was gonna do a grill in DC. So he wanted to learn about grilling. So he went and picked up shifts in Bilbao. Like, like it was just insane. So, Only Ruben, so. it's, uh, yeah, I mean, he's one of a kind. I love the man to death. He's just, he's yeah, magic, he's, he's great. super fun. So yeah. forward, so ahead, you know? Oh yeah, he's, he's been forward and ahead for 25 years, I mean. He was a teenager at Martin Versategui for three years before he came to Italy. Like he was running That's the department. That's nuts into itself, right? Like he was running the department at 19. I mean, that like, and I mean, I was 22, no, 22 or 23. But I mean, I, that was my first real job. I had one stage in a pastry shop and six months in Chibreo, like nothing. I didn't speak a word of Catalan or Spanish. Uh, I mean, I tried, but that was... You know, that was my third country in three years and third language, third cooking style. Uh, but it was great experience. Uh, I mean, I like, and I, again, I could have gone back the next year, but I went to the lab and then I was still looking. I went to Australia. I mean, back then, again, it's, it's kind of something, you know, you had to go. If you wanted to see what the restaurants were like, you had to go. You couldn't read it. You couldn't even read about it in a magazine. There wasn't. There was no food internet. There was no internet. I mean, I checked my email once at a you know a biker bar. Like no one had email, so you had to actually. There was no social media. So if you wanted to know what the dishes were, you had to go. Yeah, uh, and, and, if, you, and if if you were lucky enough that a friend had gone and gotten a photocopy of the menu for you to read about, and then you would ask questions. And I'm sure the, and like, I have to ask, cause like, 
I talk about this with everybody in the top, like, right. I don't know if you can see it up there, there. Those are all my yeah. notebooks, right? Yeah. I'm sure you must have all your notebooks, all your drawing, your station setups, your plate drawings. Like this is pre phone, pre internet. Like we had to like, really, if we wanted it, we had to go get it. Yeah. And like, I, I, I mean, I'm, I really appreciated that. I, I don't know how you, I guess to sort of flip it on its head nowadays, like, I don't know how you get motivated to go find something that you can have on your phone instantly. Like, I just don't understand the process. I understand the reverse. Like I understand wanting to put something on your phone that you've gone and found, but I don't know how you like, if you've grown up with everything and you can go anywhere and like for you to go to a restaurant or to see every dish, like, in, in one hour, like even for someone like Noma, that's what I think makes like what they do so amazing. It's like within one hour, every dish is online. So you already know the whole menu. There's no surprise left in fine dining anymore. Like it's, it's insane. I mean, we have the benefit that our place is so dark that the photos are terrible. So no one really knows what the food looks like because it's impossible to get a good picture. But people, but people hate that. But like, but as a result, you can still be surprised when you come to our place because you couldn't really see it in other people's photos. But, but like, I don't know, I, it's just, it's so much pressure to create. I mean, we feel that pressure to create and we're here in a like 5,000 person town in a 30 seat dessert bar. So, and no, you know, like we're pretty irrelevant to the overall scheme of things. But like, I, I just can't imagine when you have all of that, it, it does change the experience. I mean, even I'm trying to remember, like I didn't have a phone until I was 26. So I didn't have to like wonder about what I was going to do at dinner. I just went to dinner. Like, you know, I just, you'd go to like the restaurant was the show. It wasn't like I needed to maintain another personality online. Like, I think that's a lot of pressure that, and I mean, the results I think are terrible, but I, I think it's maybe underestimated how much pressure that puts on the both the operator, but also the person, like, what are you gonna extract if like what you're looking for is a photo? You know what I mean? I, I don't really know how that jives with the experience of a restaurant, um, but I, I mean, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting because I remember the first time I was able to go and dine in Paris and my wife and I went to eat at what used to be Robichon, which became Ducasse. Yep. And we sit down and I have a notebook in my lap and I'm writing notes. And I'm kind of like, that have been cool back then. They would like, could have gotten upset with you. Yeah. But I'm like drawing pictures and I'm like, I'll never forget. Like one of the servers came over at, to the table next to us and he was deboning, um, the, he basically had Investica, so in the bladder, the whole bird, truffles under, and I'm like writing stuff down, like drawing pictures, and the server peeks over my shoulder, and I was like, oh shit, I'm done. He's kicked, they're going to kick us out, and my wife's got a, a step stool for her purse, you know, and it's like, I didn't have a jacket. They lent me a jacket, like I'm breaking the bank for us to go and eat. And it ended up being one of like those moments, right? Like drawing the pictures, writing all the notes, but just like, it was so, the whole experience, every single piece of it, watching the table next to us with this beautiful Garadon service and like opening up the, that bladder and pulling the whole bird out and deboning it with a spoon. 
I was like, oh my God, like those, that, those, uh, those things can't realistically, you can't smell that, you can't feel that unless you're there. And I think those are very visceral, powerful feelings, right? The sense of smell and sight and taste and, and, and the sound of hearing things around you. And it just is a powerful experience. Yeah, I, I'm very lucky. I feel very lucky. I look at my daughter who's now 18 and I'm like, I'm very lucky I didn't grow up with all these distractions. Like, I'm not sure how well I would have done. I guess that's like the flip side of it is just how hard it is to stay concentrated on something. Like it's where, when that's not something to be valued really anymore. But like I had that, I didn't get a chance. So Robichon, the takeover for when I got to Paris in so 97, that was, and actually my friend Casper was part of that opening team with Laurent Blanc, um, with, with Laurent Gras when they took over for, for Robuchon in summer of 97. Uh, so I missed a chance to go there. Um, and I, so I didn't get a chance, which was a big, like a big loss. But I, my, that moment for me at that level was going to Mark Beirat in the Alps, which was like, I don't know if you had a chance to go there, but it was like, I, I took did the it. There. And, it, and it, again, it was expensive, but it was like, it was still French Franks. It, like it was, it was expensive, but affordable in, in other ways. I mean, if you didn't spend money on anything else, you would go there, you know, like, and, yeah. but it was like, we went there and it was like, you know, there's a hundred loaves of bread, like for the bread service, or there's like 120 cheeses on the cheese card. There's 60 digestives, like wheeled over to your table, take whatever you want, leave it on the table. Like there's just that, that idea of like, nothing is too much like that. But it was also like old school hospitality, you know, where it's just like, we know you don't have any money. We'll recommend you like a Valois white wine that's like $30, you know, like when the cheapest other wine on the list is like a thousand dollars. They're like, you know, we'll give you like a local uh, Geneva area wine and like, but you're in the restaurant, so you get all the shit. Nobody cares if you're getting like the short menu or the long menu, or you have, you know, you're in a bar of jacket, or like I don't even know. I'm, I couldn't have had a jacket at that point. I could, I can't even imagine what I was wearing. But, but it was like, you get the good shit. You get to sit there. They, you get everything they have. Like that attitude. I that was also something that I found in Chibre. I was like, you go to eat at one of those places. If you get everything, like everything they have, whatever it is, it's like it's right. And I feel like that feeling of generosity, like that stuck with me a lot because at the time that was like the hardest uh, restaurant to get into either for work or to eat. It was like the most expensive in Paris. The guy was like the most famous for having borrowed and lost all this money and like was a big TV. And it was just like, but it, none of that ego had anything to do with the food and the experience. It was all about like just giving you more stuff. It was like, this is like the cheese from my family cave you know, like this, it was so generous. And I think that's something that's missed also. Like at there, I was reading an article, I think by Jay McInerney yesterday, like about the death of uh, haute cuisine. And I do get the, and I also just watched the menu, which I thought was absolutely the funniest thing I've ever seen. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. Oh my God, I don't want to spoil it then. But it, it like, it was, I mean, if, if you're into like, bullshit tasting menus like we are like it's just the, it's the funniest thing i've ever seen it's like the most on the nose like takedown of restaurant chefs it's hilarious i always almost fell out of my chair cinema people thought i was just absolutely lunatic <laughs> like and it was just it was just and like and rightly so like for that kind of behavior to be just totally like uh, lampooned 
I mean, even the chef's table music is in it. It's just, it's absolutely hilarious. So totally, totally genius, totally weird, but, but like, you know, these, there's a sense of generosity, which is hard to, you really can't justify it financially from an operational side, right? You can't just give away everything all the time. No, it doesn't matter if you charge a million dollars. Like it doesn't even matter. There's no, there's no price for that. Like there, and you can't, you can't like PNL that in, you know, you can't like justify how to have like everything you own on the table, every table, every night, twice a day. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not possible. Like that's the funny thing here. I mean, we're a dessert restaurant, but I mean, we're basically set up like a French country house, you know, like you sit in the salon and go out. I mean, it's very rustic. It's like a, it's like not even, there's not walls, but like the idea is you come to our house, you sit in the lobby, you know, you have some snacks, you come inside, you have some dessert, you know, you go out by the fire, like, you know, you have this whole universe, right? Like, because we want to give you like everything that we have. Like, and in fact, to the point where we had to shorten the menu because everything we had was becoming too much. Like people weren't enjoying it anymore. It was like, we gotta bring, we gotta tear it back. Roll it uh, back. <laughs> but I don't, I, I don't see that feeling often uh, in contemporary restaurants because it's just so hard to, I understand why it's so hard to just be open at all, let alone, uh, but the, that feeling of generosity, like that definitely uh, stuck with me. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's been so appealing to stay here is like, because other things are more manageable, we're able to really just like, this is everything we have. And I, there's something about that feeling to me that reminds me like why I went to restaurants in the first place. Like that's the, that's the beautiful part of that experience is someone being super generous showing you something great. Maybe it's, maybe you've seen it before or it's better, or maybe it's similar, or maybe it's different. It doesn't actually matter. It's just like, it's just someone giving you everything they've got. I don't know. I, I have a lot of time for people that still do that. I had a meal like that last week in Singapore at a tiny restaurant that's been there for 10 years with a new chef who's been there for two years. Her name's Joanne C. And it was like, the place is called Lola, L-O-L-L-A. -L -L and it was like on the radar maybe 10 years ago. And then we sat at the counter and it was just like, they threw the fucking whole, like, I don't know what we ate, like razor clams, crab, three crabs, ragu, prawns. I mean, the whole place is like two burners, one grill, there's no pots, there's no fridge, there's no walk-in, there's no kitchen. And it was like, I was like, how did you even put that fish away? Like how, like you couldn't have put it away. You would have had to prep every item as it came in the restaurant to just put it in your low point. Like it was just the most amazing display of like, how I, I hadn't even, it reminded me of like being in New York 20 years ago. It was like this tiny team and they put out like eight or 10 dishes that were just so, so good. And it was like, literally you could tell it was the entire restaurant, everything they had was going on your table. Like everything, there was nowhere else to look. They had a couple of tables downstairs, maybe 30 people. They only do tasting menus twice a week. They run it as a la carte mystery menu the other five days. But I was like, I, I, I almost asked her like, where do you even put the food? Like where, I don't even know where it goes. Where like these huge prawns are coming out like carabinero prawns. And I'm like, There's, you don't even have a fridge. Where are they coming from? It was just, it was just great. Like, I don't know, I love that feeling. I miss that feeling frequently now when I travel and, and don't have, you know, there's so many great restaurants, but it's just so hard, so competitive and so expensive. I mean, it's just so expensive to operate right now.
like so a different time yeah i mean it's it's and it's not getting easier right let's let's be honest i mean to be able to do those things it's it's getting harder and harder and i think you know tell i really want to know like what is it that made you say i'm going to pack up and we're going to go to bali you know you you your family oh, my wife. we were just yeah yeah my, uh, I think, you know, losing the room for dessert in New York was like pretty, like, I mean, I think that was what allowed us to like say, we have nothing to keep us here. But the truth was my wife, I mean, we were just tired of being, in, like, we didn't want our daughter to grow up in a certain, like up, a certain New York setting, which preschool on is already like the, kind of like the track. Um, and it's an amazing place. And we just, we, we just were ready to move. We both have happy feet and we didn't want her to, like, we both love New York. And she, I mean, our daughter loves New York. She, she was there until she was five. You know, we were in Gramercy, we were in Queens and Jackson Heights, we loved it. Um, but you know, it was like my wife taking the train with our daughter strapped to her chest to go to like the two-year-old class on the Upper East Side. It was just like, what the fuck are we doing here? You know, like what, like, like what are we doing here, man? You know, like it just doesn't make any sense. Like, is that how we want? You know, or is this who, how who we want to be in twenty years? You know, is this who we want our daughter to be in twenty years? So we were looking for an escape, and then we had an escape uh, plan for two thousand eight, but I got super sick, so we were able to go in two thousand nine. Uh, I mean, basically, we told everyone we left. I mean, anyway, it's a long story, but. We went to Bali and we came basically for a few months. You know, that was 14 years ago. So. And there you have it. And now you're there. And, you know, let's, you know, people, I, I know folks have seen you in the Chef's Table series. I know you just won an incredible award. If you would like to talk about that, I don't, you want to teach it? I mean, it was a bit, I mean, it's a great award. I'm super flattered. So I think they ran out of other suitable candidates. As some, one of my friends said, they must have just been exhausted at overlooking you for so long. That's amazing. I wore them. I, I wore them down. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's it's really, you know, and what I love about what you're doing in Bali is not only the education component, but like there's vanilla there. There's things there that you're working with that we take for granted in the states because it's like it's here like we can buy it but like you can go out and pick it and that to me makes it so much more special and i'm sure the flavor is so much more heightened and so i just i can't imagine that because i've never had that opportunity like i've been able to pick peppercorns but to pick fresh vanilla like like that's just one example of all those cool things that are there I mean, we, we love it here. I think, I think that when we started here, I mean, look, we did, we were cooking with, you know, coconut, rosella. I mean, that's the funny thing. What you think of as the basics of pastry, chocolate, coffee, sugar, vanilla, like those aren't natural or native, you know, like those aren't, those aren't local products almost anywhere, you know? So I think that we forget that it's not just like the turmeric, the rosellas and the, it's like the whole larder. So yeah, I mean, it's amazing. We get fresh, I mean, we're doing chocolate bars downstairs. The chocolate is from one plantation, 90 minutes from here. It's ground for us fresh three times a week, 45 minutes from here. We have fresh pressed cocoa butter. Like that's, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it comes, we get it every couple of days. 
Uh, we have sugar that's made for us. We have salt that's harvested by hand one hour from here. Um, coffee that's picked one hour from here, fermented 15 minutes from here, roasted five minutes from here. Uh, and it's like, it's hard to compare that. I mean, we don't have a lot of things. We don't have berries or stone fruits or different things, but we have a lot of other things. Um, but those products, I think, we really focused on the first five or 10 years. And then the last five years, we're still focusing on that, but we've really gotten more into the stuff we can grow ourselves. So like, term, you know, the whole turmeric family, which is just such a, I mean, it's so fruity. It's like, it's like a vegetable for us because uh, we grow so much of it. Turmeric, you know, rosella, we have hundreds of plants of rosella, and all those things that we can grow that are like from the medicinal tradition. So that's been our big focus the last few years. Um, and there's sort of like, that's the, I mean, that's a big Amman. I don't know if you're an Amman hotels junkie, but there's like one right around the corner from us and the, the family that started it live around the corner. And their big thing is always like space and time are the ultimate luxury. Like it's not about money. I mean, they happen to be the most expensive hotel in the world, but the, the principle of space and time, like, I mean, it's a little ironic, but but the, the idea is space and time, right? So like we have a dish, which is, I don't know if you know, kluwak, it's like a black fermented seed. It's frequently used to flavor beef stews here, like oh, wow. rawan, which is Japanese beef stew. It's kind of caribbean, uh, has that sort of feel, but you have to ferment it for, I don't know, five months. It's kind of like a blackening process, but organic, like it's blackened, uh, but not with any, the ways that other people blacken things like it's not in a rice cooker it's not accelerated it's just it's like a really slow ferment it's kind of in between a fungus it, so it's what we think of it as like a truffle so like for us we you know like we press it and slice it and it looks like a truffle slice but it's a because it's luxurious to us you know because it's took us a long time to make it's not like luxury it's not expensive you know but it's luxurious so yeah. i think that the here we're very lucky like you know we don't have a lot of gold dust uh, but like turmeric is pretty gold you know like when you when you grow the turmeric and juice i mean we juice like a ton of turmeric like every day like we juice I mean, yeah we juice kilos of it every day and then you have so much pulp right like which is and if you dry and ground and then it's gold you know so it's like we have gold dust and we you know we have like truffles it's just like this other worth like not worthless but you know commodity product um but we've spent a lot of time with those ingredients the last few years um and we've spent a lot of time cooking around other cuisines our last menu was a huge like nouvelle cuisine influence uh, i mean it's uh we're i mean we're still in there hustling every day trying to make it happen I and mean, that's the that's that's kind of what it's all about i think that's the I mean, it's the hard part of the job, but it's also the beautiful part. Every I mean, you still wake up and show up, and still have to put on a show every night. So that's a uh, that's really a good discipline. Like you just have to show up every day. I think that's a. Uh, so we've been we've been super lucky to survive the last couple of years. Most, I mean, frankly, most of my friends, many of my friends, and a lot of the chefs I've looked up to have not been as fortunate. So we're just trying to kind of be grateful, you know, live in the moment. You know, we were more like yesterday was okay. Today looks okay. Tomorrow looks okay. That's sort of our whole radar now is uh, three days instead of three years or 10 years or whatever the normal plan would have been until two years ago. So, but yeah, I mean, we're trying to, 
we're trying to pay that forward and give people a shot, you know, turn more of our long serving staff because most of our opening team is still here. Like, so, you know, our GM started here as a bar back at 16. He's now 25. And our chef has started here as a commie at 22. She's now 31. Like we're going to try to give them their own restaurant. So we can give them sort of like access to wealth instead of just income. But, you know, that's easier said than done. So we're, that's kind of our big plan for this year. Um, but we'll see, like right now it's, you know, we start sort of like the quietest week of the year last week and then the busiest week of the year next week. So we're in that little limbo. We've got a new menu coming for Jan. You know, we're still, we still do two new, two new full tasting menus twice a year. Um, so we got to do 30 or 40 dishes a year. Um, but yeah, still hustling, you know, still, still, uh, still, still in there mixing it up, you know, like. But that's the way same, it is. Same. I would, I can't I mean, you're see you any other way. That's the thing, Will. I can't see you any other way. But that's, I keep saying to everyone that works, I'm like, if you're lucky, it gets harder. Like, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're lucky, it's like gets harder because people still you come. You know, like we had that very weird moment in the pandemic where it's like, you know, you always have that dream as a restaurateur. Like, you walk, you know, you wake up in class in your underwear, you know, like no one's there. <laughs> like, there's no customers. You go out on stage, you go out on stage, and there's no one in the audience, you know, like, and we had that for two years, like, with, and really nothing that we could do about it. I mean, the airport's closed. So we just had to, it, it was very weird. To like, what do you, the hell do you do at an empty restaurant? How do you tell people that what they're doing makes any sense at all? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. We're walking into an empty restaurant with 40 staff to try to pretend that we have work to do, you know, like, so it was, it was very surreal. I mean, we were productive, you know, we cooked, we're still cooking. We have a big uh, meal tomorrow with the orphanage that we, that we work with. We've been cooking for the last two years. You know, we, we gave away a ton of food. We did, we still do 200 meals a day, which again, it's not a lot by like a public service standpoint, but for a little 30 seat dessert bar, it's- That's a uh, lot. And I think that's that's amazing that you're able to still do that. I mean, you were able to employ your staff through the pandemic. You had built a garden, you're feeding people. I mean, that's a big undertaking for us, for a 30 seat restaurant. That's a big undertaking. I mean, we gave away I don't know, 95 plus percent of what we made in 2020. Uh, and I mean, the, the first thing was just take care of our staff. And then it was like, okay, let's take care of the people in the community. And then it was like, well, if we don't buy food, then those people are going to be out of business. Like it's, you know, it's a small economy here, but I think as people are seeing around the world, it's like, it's all small economies, really. If you're honest about what it, like, if you can't take care of the people around you, like no one else is going to. <laughs> so. So it's uh, it's kind of it's very humbling, but it's it's also nice when it works. I mean, it was pretty. I'm not sure we could have gone another lap around the track. I'll put it that way. This year was we 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 kind of got lucky that uh, Bali opened up this year around Easter. Uh, I mean, tourism isn't back at all. It's it's uh, less than a third of what it was in 2019. But but. I mean, we just got lucky. We caught a lucky break. We just stayed open long enough for people to come back. Barely. <laughs> like, so, but it was good. Great experience. Well, on a different note, let's play a game. You have to go to work. You're what? 18 hours ahead of me, right? Yes. So you're in tomorrow. You're tomorrow. I'm today. Saturday afternoon. It's 2.30. I've got a call. We've got pre-shift in an hour and I've got a full boat in night in, uh, starting at four o'clock. Here you so, go. Yeah. So let's play a game. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. 
Hmm. I change the order every time. Hamburger, hot dog. Oh, hamburger, hamburger. Ketchup, mustard. Mustard. Dijon, whole grain. Dijon. Whole grain, as it, I mean, I like the little whole grain, but as a first call, I don't think Dijon. <laughs> Beef or pork? That's tough. You know, we're in a pork island here. So I'm going to go, I, I would say globally beef, locally pork. Chicken duck. I eat more chicken. I like duck more. Sorry, I'm not trying to waffle, but it's, those are good. No, questions. that's fine. No answer is wrong. It's just in everybody, it's a fun game. You know, everybody has a different answer. So mm -hmm. it makes it really fun. Um, nigiri, sashimi. Uh, sashimi. Sea urchin caviar. Both, 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 definitely both, definitely, definitely both together, definitely both at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't choose. That's impossible choice. <laughs> raw oysters, raw clams. Oysters. Lobster, crab. Lobster. It's easier. It's easier. Never. Nobody said that. It's easier. Everybody has a different. That's the first time I've ever heard that. That must be from like torturous years of like picking crab in a restaurant. <laughs> I've picked some bad crab in my days. Like I've, I've worked in some shitty places, you know, like it's not all caviar and sea urchin, you know, on the, let's say I've worked in a lot of dive bars. I've worked in a lot of shitty places over 35 years. So oh yeah, God. it's not always uh, it's not always Hokkaido snow crab. You know, like, so. Pasta or noodles? Pasta. Ravioli dumplings. That's tough. Have to be dumplings in this over here. Yeah, you can't compare. It's pretty funny because people I've had people say they're the same thing, but they're so different because there's so many different dumplings. There's steaming, there's boiled, there's fried, there's and it's it's you know, I think it's a I just made my screens my uh my first WhatsApp profile pick is three Shaolong Bao from from Din Tai Fung. Like that I put <laughs> yesterday. And I love I love ravioli, but like that's a different world. It's not fair. Two the totally dumpling is dumpling, it's like a whole, a whole universe. Risotto and noodle, noodle, noodles are too, but pasta, like I'm still a pasta guy at heart. Yeah. Sorry, what was the last one? Uh, risotto, paella. Oof, I'm going to offend pretty much everybody there. That's tough. How about neither? Because I'm, I, I can't eat carbs at all. <laughs> <laughs> I can't handle the rice. I love both. I love both. Uh, I mean, if you're at the beach, it's got to be paella over risotto. Which, if you're in tropic in the tropics, it's got to be paella. Light beer, dark beer. Light. White wine, red wine. Uh, bubbles. Well, my next question is: bubbles or champagne or lambrusco? Champagne, champagne, and I love lambrusco, but it's still champagne. And white or red? I got. I can't drink either anymore. I can't handle the alcohol. I, it's really? like I can't. I just can't handle it. The hardest thing I can handle is like a natural, like 9%, like a natural ferment, you know, like, uh, yeah, I've just, uh, yeah. So I even, even, yeah. I totally get it. Um, but if it's white or red, again, I'd go, I'd say orange. 
Orange. I like that. I like I like the orange wines. Or rosé. I can almost handle orange or rosé. I don't handle any anymore. I haven't had a drink in four years. Good for you. That's yeah, uh, a new, new world. New world. I'm more. I'm more like once a month, maybe. Yeah. So, chocolate or fruit? Uh, chocolate. Bitter or sweet? Bitter, bitter, bitter. No, no. It's so funny. Some people, I'm surprised when people say sweet, like I'm actually, but it's, it's a mix. Like the, 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 the mix on it is actually heavier towards fruit than it is towards chocolate because of the variety, I think. I mean, yeah, and there's more fruit and I probably, I mean, I eat a lot more fruit, but like, I don't, I don't crave it in the same way. Tea or coffee? Will, did you get that That's one? That's tough. I'm a, coffee, I'm, a co- I'm a coffee guy, but I don't drink a lot anymore. But yeah, it's still coffee. Still coffee. Even decaf. Even decaf I drink. So, uh, favorite candy? Oof. It's tough because I am sitting upstairs from a candy shop right now. Uh, I think peanut M&M's would have to be the best candy. <laughs> and, favorite gu- and your guilty pleasure? I mean, as yeah, very little anymore, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. I don't know. Food wise? Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't eat a lot of fast food anymore. Pasta with chickpeas, but that's like a pretty healthy guilty pleasure. That's not really, that's not really a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Vanilla ice cream is not really guilty. It's a part of my job every day. I don't know what's forbidden these days. Like what's, I don't, uh, I don't think anything is. <laughs> I don't know what's forbidden. Uh, I don't know. I could sneak in an occasional McDonald's at the movie theater. Like that's kind of gross. I think like a McDonald's in your cinema chair is pretty gross. I don't mind that. Oh. I think my guilty, my guilty pleasure is uh, telenovelas on Netflix. <laughs> that's good. I like that. So, Will, if people want to, you know, see what you're doing, check out the restaurant. Um, can you share with them um, website and your Instagram? Yeah, of course. I mean, the best thing, obviously, is fly to Bali and drive to Ubud, come to Room for Dessert, uh, or the Powder Room, which we just opened next door. Um, and I believe our Instagram handle is r4d underscore room for dessert. And the Powder Room is, I should know because I just put it up a few weeks ago. It's powder room underscore R4D. Um, and the website is room for dessert.com, but I, I should check. I, <laughs> it's funny that I don't know, but I think it's room for dessert.com. Um, I'll, have yeah, links. A, I'll have links for everybody on there. Great. I'll but make yeah, sure you can, access. You can and see all the new stuff, all the new stuff we're doing at the powder room, like Mars bars and, uh, and, uh, like botanical bomboloni and, and uh, sour soft soft serve, all the fun stuff we've been doing that's really like sort of a more playful version of what we do in the restaurant, kind of like the one minute and $1 version. Um, and then Room for Dessert is kind of our long form, long album. But uh, just next door, I'm looking at both actually. So. Well, thank you so much for taking time. I know you're busy and I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since we've been able to catch up, and but this is not going to be the last. No, no, let's keep it less than uh, 15 years before the next time. <laughs> for sure, for sure.